Brandon here, and welcome to Transform Your Workplace. If you're a first-time listener, thank you for giving us a try. And for all you returning listeners, thank you for supporting the show. In today's episode, I have a conversation with Mark Greenberg. He's the author of Elevated Leadership, a pitch-by-pitch guide to business, life, and baseball. And what was fascinating about his book and this conversation is that he makes a lot of parallels uh, between baseball and leadership. And it was a fun conversation. You don't have to be a baseball fan in order to get a lot out of this episode. We talk about what makes good leaders, what are their characteristics, why social and emotional intelligence is important, and how leaders can reflect on their actions and actions of others to be better and to make a better workplace. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review, a written review would be awesome, and make sure to follow us uh, on Twitter, LinkedIn, and follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, any of those places. I would love to connect with you. Enjoy the episode with Mark Greenberg. Talk to you next week. Hey, Mark. Awesome to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Brandon. I'm happy to be here. And I know that you are a huge Trailblazers fan. And I'm sorry to hear about the recent the recent injury of your star player. That's not a great way to make your playoff push. No, it's it's actually quite frustrating. And uh, the fact that you know, Nurkic went out with a broken leg and he gosh, who knows when he'll be back, but you also have CJ McCollum out too. So Uh hopefully he'll come back sooner rather than later for a playoff push. But Nurkic was playing so good. It's just, it's really, really frustrating. So it could be deflating to a team to see, like you work so hard and then to have something like that happen is really frustrating. (laughs) And that franchise, as you know, has just been snake bitten Uh, by, by bigs getting hurt. I mean, you can go all the way back to Bill Walton, which was a little bit before my time, but before my time, Greg, too. <laughs> Greg Oden, Brandon Roy, all these guys whose careers were going to just become, you know, the quintessential Hall of Fame player. They just were derailed by these awful freak injuries. I mean, that was awful to look at. Oh, no, it was it was horrible. I'm glad they didn't like on the local broadcast. They did not show the replay of that because it was it was disturbing to see it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the fact that y- you follow basketball. Um, I'm a big basketball fan myself. Uh, you're a big baseball fan too. And you've got a book, Elevated Leadership, a pitch-by-pitch guide to business, life, and baseball. And when you wrote this book and you started really outlining the contents of it, why did you make the parallel between baseball and leadership? Like, What's the connection in your mind? And why did you outline it this way? I think that the connection is the game, You know, back in the 40s and 50s, Factory workers would gather around a radio and listen to, you know, the play-by-play of the greatest announcers in the world from Vin Scully, you know, to the early Harry Carey days with the Cardinals. Mm -hmm. And what would happen is the game evolved from a collection of a, a team. People would stick with one team for the duration of their career. Free agency really didn't happen, I think, until Kurt Flood came around. And then I think Kirby Puckett was one of the higher priced for agents. But what ended up happening is as individual teams, individual players began leaving franchises earlier, there just seemed to be this void. And I think Bill James, who was the godfather of sabermetrics, which is really advanced analytics in baseball, began 
quantifying the game of baseball. So it became far more than people sitting around a radio at the factory listening to, you know, uh, any monumental Bobby Thompson's home run, any monumental game you can imagine. People remember where they were, but as a game has evolved, statistics, analytics are things that are very quantifiable. But ironically, and you're in HR, in business, in relationships, in education, the things that are quantifiable is really about the human connection between, between people. And leadership, I think more than anything, speaks to that commitment to develop someone else's skills, have empathy. So the book is really grounded in the concepts of emotional intelligence, which is, it's not, it's not a new phenomenon, but the idea of taking SEL or social emotional learning and making that the forefront of developing people, because we know if we develop our people, our ROI is gonna go up pretty significantly, but we get stuck in this tug of war of pulling and pushing and trying to solve conflict. So I wrote this book as this, uh, almost like this metaphor for how we go about our daily life. And I was struggling with an audience deciding whether it should be written for a parent, a teacher or a business. But <laughs> yeah. if someone read the book and they just focused on being a parent or a teacher, the concepts of emotional intelligence, being open, having perspective, being self-aware are really synonymous with with all areas of our life. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I mean, you had a lot of books outlined at the end of each chapter. And one of the books that like popped out to me was Mindset. Like I've read that book years ago. And you know, this that book in particular, it's you know, it's great for business, it's great for uh parenting, it's good for anything. And that's why I I love like the contents of your book. It's like emotional intelligence, it's good for parenting, it's you know, to become a good leader, you need an emotional intelligence. So I I, I totally get what you're saying there. So you had you'd mentioned earlier and in the book that you know with baseball and in a, a lot of times in business with productivity it's very measurable. You talked about like Bill James changed the game of baseball because he brought analytics, you know, on base percentage, batting average, RBIs, you know, things like that where it's very quantifiable the, the productivity. But leadership is one of those things that's kind of hard to measure. In your mind, like, how do you measure leadership? What, like, what are the characteristics of a of a good leader, and how do you measure the success of a leader? Yeah, that is a great question. When I figure out the answer, I will let you know because I think that is <laughs> yeah. that that would be I would be uh, a fraud if I sat here and gave you a really easy answer because I I think that is that is the nature of trying to understand people. To me, though, I believe that the single greatest attribute that a great leader has, and it's such a simple answer, is just this self-awareness. And it's not, even that, it's not even that their behavior and their choices have to be great all the time, but it's recognizing that, well, if I did snap at that employee, I'm able to reflect on it and be aware and not just go over and apologize, but use that opportunity to grow and build a connection between a person. My background is in education. I taught for 20 years at a private school. And you know, without bashing anyone, I think the challenge of being observed by someone or evaluated by someone has a lot of merit in terms of professional growth. But if there's no connection between the person that's giving me my evaluation, there's a very good chance that I am not just gonna tune them out, but I'm gonna probably hold some resentment as well. 
So I think just meeting basic needs. And I always, in my, a lot of my keynotes and workshops, I talk a lot about even just marriage, that it's, it's not the fancy shiny ring that makes your wife happy. It's the little things, uh, being aware of the kids are, you know, honey, why don't you sleep in today? Uh, it's doing simple things around the house. It's recognizing their haircuts. It's acknowledging how pretty they look and how much you appreciate all the little things that they do. So if a leader is not aware of their own place in that circle, I think it literally just creates this string of negativity. And then it's just, it's pushing a rock up a hill. And at the end, you're going to be fatigued and embattered and innovation then just comes to a complete standstill. You bring up a really good point. Leadership is it's hard. You can't quantify it really. And you're still seeking the answer to that. Uh, but, I, but I do love your point about how self-awareness plays a huge role in the success of a, a leader. If you're self-aware, you understand that the, maybe you're making an impact or maybe you're not, and maybe you need to make tweaks. And I'm sure the feedback loop between the people that you're supporting and inspiring and their productivity, like as long as you're constantly getting feedback and self-aware, that's, that's sort of like the way you're going to have to quantify whether you're successful as a leader, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was listening to one of your podcasts last week on, on a commute, and I believe you had a woman who you work with who was talking about change management. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I forget what I forget what her name Nicole was. Nicole Carey. And I thought her point was spot on about this idea of great. We have all these ideas. We're going to make changes, but if we don't believe in what we're doing, mm -hmm. it's almost it's it's self defeating because we're just spinning our tires and wasting time. So that that paradigm shift everyone talks about. And for me in the book, it's OPS. And in baseball, as we know, it's on base plus slugging, power, consistency, routines, processes. When those start becoming consistent, then you start really making those changes. But I actually am at the point in my career where if I go to a C executive and I say to them, I share my philosophy and I pretty much say, this might not be for you. Your business might not be ready to take a look at what the real issue is because the real issue is not your selling force. The real issue is how you are looking at your employees. And I think mm. the biggest the biggest misconception in business for me, and I would say 80% of my, of my clients are all millennials, is I think the media has done a whole disservice to a generation of workers that are absolutely killing it. They're uh, doing an amazing job. I agree. But what ends up happening is they are not meeting the expectation of their Gen X or their baby boomer boss because we we could spend three hours talking about cross-generational conflict in a workforce, but it really comes down to the millennials are actually doing just fine in their workforce. They're the future CEOs. And if we don't stop and think about how to better equip ourselves to handle, not just handle, but to appreciate the things that they do well, you will see a swift decline in turnover, retention. I think it starts with even things simple as onboarding. You know, that's, that's a big buzzword, but what does it actually mean? You know, for me, onboarding is having a healthy culture and bringing people into that healthy culture minimizes conflict times 
times 10. You had a whole section on reflection and I thought it was, it was great. And it actually dovetails into what you're just describing with, you know, Gen Xers or baby boomers in looking at millennials, they, because millennials don't work the same way that they do, they may, you know, want to criticize a whole entire group of people because they don't behave the same way they do. So how do you like as a leader reflect on either your own actions and be self-aware around those or the ones of others and just, you know, whether it's jotting it down and, and reflecting on behavior or what somebody did and then, you know, using that to change your approach in the future. I've been working a lot with my clients on this very thing. And it, it, it even comes back to an interview process. One of my clients I'm working with, they're struggling with punctuality, just having people arrive on time. So their first answer is, well, we need to fire these people. We need to make changes. But then I say, well, that's going to create additional problems because now you have to rehire, you have to retrain, you have to realize that the person you, you currently have might actually be working. So the, the shift in the way that we look at them, but the key is you have to engage the brain differently. Uh, when I was teaching, it was going to a child who really struggles and just simply acknowledging, hey, you and I both know you're having a really hard time, you know, sitting still in class. I'd like to set up a plan. So I want to support what you're doing. You know, tell me what you think. It's asking the child who comes home from school, how was your day versus tell me the thing that you enjoyed best about your day. Tell me the thing that you found most challenging about your day. Because what that does is if I ask you, Brandon, what's been the most challenging part of your day, your mind will immediately go to that one place. If I flip it, though, and say, tell me something funny that happened today, you can flip your mind that way. So as companies are innovating and trying to build systems and processes, taking the time to debrief every step of the way. Now, we don't want to oversaturate this, which my wife would probably argue, you know, I'm you're talking about your feelings again, because some people don't actually want to talk about their feelings, which is fine. But talking about the processes that are involved, I, for me at least, you know, I, I also, we, my family, we own a summer day camp. We employ about 100 millennial employees wow. every summer with about 400 children. And this really is where my philosophy started to take place because employees were making what I thought were really easy mistakes. But when you start seeing this five people making the same mistake, well, maybe you should maybe think that we're not doing a good job teaching that. Yes. So, yeah, I love that. So I've I've taken that philosophy and I have a a work a three a workbook series and it's all embedded on this idea of building competency. And it's really based on three concepts. And the first one is the social aspects of work are as important as the technical aspects of work. Second piece would be employees need certain skills, empathy, compassion, communication. And the third one, and I think this is the most important, the way that we teach people is as important as what we teach people. So if I'm a, a middle manager, and I know you're in HR, and I would say that middle managers probably struggle the most with this because they're given the keys to the kingdom based on someone said, hey, you're pretty good at this job. <laughs> But they don't realize that being a leader or a manager has a whole nother set of skills that they haven't even tapped into, which then creates that, that negative cycle. But the idea of trying 
to really impress upon your people this content in how we teach it. Just even putting an image of a cartoon at the start of a meeting and talking about what the image means and then relating it back to what you do, you immediately grow this connection between people, which then when you are struggling, which every business does, every family does, that connection, you've already established rapport and trust. That connection should propel you then to be more open and honest about the direction you want to go to. You'd mentioned specifically in the book how employees typically receive like feedback when something's wrong. But like if you're constantly being told by a leader or a manager that you know you're messing up, you're doing something wrong, how will they ever know when they're doing something good or they're exceeding expectations? Like what is a better approach as a as a manager or a leader to make sure that employees know that they're doing doing something the right way or that they're going above and beyond? The easy answer is you got to just pay attention. I mean, I think most of us, and in, in if you have parents who are listening, most of us respond to something, that, something that's already happened. So we are constantly, our child misbehaves, we respond. Our, you know, but the idea of anticipating what the, the child needs, to me, is a way different strategy. Because if I know my kid, when they when they're hungry, they get crabby. Well, then <laughs> yeah. I need to have snacks on me. I need. I mean, so to me, it's anticipating people's needs mm-hmm. and the need. Without getting too much in psychology, it's really belonging and feeling secure and safe. And the the disconnect between the millennials and what they need kind of makes sense. Who who wants to work at a job where you feel like a cog in a machine? Yeah where you're constantly belittled and you're told you're doing something wrong because you could go across the street, make the same money, maybe make a couple dollars less, but take that stress out. Brandon, in your work, do you guys deal a lot with employee assistance programs looking at depression and anxiety? We have in in part of our model. So we do payroll processing and other benefits as as well as HR consulting. And we have an EAP partner and it's, it's kind of a plug and play service where they can like clients of ours can add that on and provide it to their employees. Well, a, a lot of our clients use that on a regular basis and it helps them with anything from mental health to, you know, life events, whether it's, uh, something as negative as like somebody dying in their family or uh, something positive like buying a home or something. But there's just all this like mental, I don't know, like you bring bring all these life events into the work. And so EAPs really help out. Yeah. And, and I, don't, I don't think every company is in a position to probably run an EAP program. Because yeah. I, I, like for me, that is way my pay grade. I would <laughs> not feel comfortable being a therapist, I got my own problems to worry about. But <laughs> but what I but what I can do is I can create a environment in a culture that is actually conducive to someone then wanting to say, "Hey, I kind of need some help right now." Because just throwing it out there in and engaging, you know, questions. You know, I, I the camp that we run is heart is situated in DePaul University. My dad started it about twenty five years ago. And camp's a bit different than big business, but we have this ball, and I think it's called a thumb ball. You ever hear of it before? No, I haven't. 
basically it's a little cushy ball that has these little prompts on it. You can even make one yourself probably. And if I tossed you the ball, I would say lower left thumb. And the prompt would be, who is your favorite superhero? And then you would pass the ball. To the oh, next person. yes. So what yeah. you're doing. So what you're doing is you are making a connection with people that you not normally mm-hmm. would. You know, for me, I created this program I was sharing with you earlier. It's really geared a lot to franchise businesses, companies who have middle managers who have a four year degree, but no background in leadership or management employees who you know, are making, you know, bit more than minimum wage, but the, it's that purpose that people need, that connection. So just simply asking someone, you know, how was your weekend versus what was the best thing about your weekend? And then the leader or manager writes a note down because they have a nice long notebook. And then on Monday, they go to me and they say, hey, Brandon, you went to the movies last week. Tell me about it. Because that connection to me will drive someone to want to work. Absolutely. Maybe five five percent harder, ten percent. And once we can do that, we also realize we're not putting away with we're not dealing with a lot of the tension and the stress and the conflict. Cause for me, most work that I do involves conflict resolution. It's never about the it's never about someone's competency on the actual job. It's usually around interpersonal relationships, which which are the core heartbeat of any yep. business in the tech field, in education, in, in anything. Mark, did you ever read the book Culture Code by Daniel Coyle? I did not. So no. I, How do you spell that? Uh, C-O-Y-L-E. So there's, I might butcher the story, but in this, in this book, uh, they talked about how I think it was the manager the, of the Chicago Cubs and how he made this rule where if a player messed up or they, they felt like they just weren't aligned or something, they would, um, I think he had like a fishbowl full of slips of paper that had like really expensive bottles of wine listed. And so he, mm-hmm. like if, if a player screwed up, um, he would, you know, call him into the office and say, okay, pull out a, this one of the slips and then make the player go buy the bottle of wine and then you go get it, bring it back to the office. And then they would, they would drink uh, the bottle of wine together while talking about what went wrong or how they can improve it. Like, I think it was just a, it was a way to, for one, open up the feedback loop and then just reconnect because something was amiss. And I thought that was, I thought that was a really strong leadership point where, if you're open with your people, uh, they're probably going to work. Like to your point, they're going to work even harder next time. Yeah, that, that's that's actually that's a really good parallel. And if if I had to teach two things to people, it'd be in. I think you said, Brand, you have a six year old. How old is your I, other so child? seven years old is my son, and then my daughter's like five and a half, so almost six. So. So what do you do then when your kid's jumping on the couch and you're <laughs> and you're just you're like, what are you oh. doing? Tell, describe. To, and, and if, if, if you don't want me to, you know, you don't want to. This is not therapy. So if you don't want to talk. Oh, about I have your, no problem we'll talking talk about, about kids. <laughs> oh, oh, I say we'll talk about your friend's kids, but we'll, we'll know it's actually about your kid, you know, just to kind of help you uh, disguise a little yeah. bit. Um, but what I, do you do? What well, do you do? I have different. I'm just trying to figure out my approach every time because they respond to me differently like sometimes if depending on my mood i might 
you know, snap at them or something, which is not probably not the best approach. But, you know, the, sometimes the stare, the look will will be enough because if they lock eyes with me and they know I'm disappointed in what they're doing, uh, sometimes they, they're embarrassed and they'll, they'll stop. But I feel like if if I yell or something, they just want to do it more to just get a rise out of me. So I, yeah. I'm still trying to figure it out. I mean, parenting's hard and <laughs> kids will kick and scream all day long when they're that young. And I think that to me is a parallel between the philosophy. And again, I did not come up with this philosophy. There's people way smarter than I did. Uh, I have lived this as an educator and as an entrepreneur and running a camp. But the, the easy answer is to change the perspective from what you're looking at. And I think that's the same challenge a manager has with employees aren't meeting expectations. For example, when your kid is jumping on the couch and you're trying to cook dinner, the frying pan sizzling, you got the, your, your wife's coming home from work and you feel this, just this stress. And then of course, the next thing that happens is the trigger gets switched and you immediately go to that place. But just simply saying, you know, uh, hey, Brandon, the couch is for sitting completely changes the whole mm. mood of, of everything. Uh, and if you do it in a way where proximity and spaces, and I think that's another thing that, that I, that we have to teach people what is a comfortable distance for me talking to you simply getting down to one getting down on one knee with your child maybe a gentle touch in a calmer voice but that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about this aware if you're not aware of this it's impossible to do and leaders do this as well so the employee does x and then all of a sudden now they're talking about what happened a month ago and the next thing you know, the employee's out the door and it's the third time they've someone has quit. And then the manager's sitting there completely clueless as to why this is happening on their watch. So that's one part. And the other part would be to are you a football oh, fan yeah. too, by the way? Oh yeah, big time. Okay. Who do you, who do you who do you follow? Uh, you know, in the days of fantasy football, it's uh, kind of hard to follow one team. You know, it's uh, proximity wise, <laughs> Seattle Seahawks. I know a lot of people will probably like look at me weird or or maybe not want to listen to me anymore. Uh, but you know, Seattle would probably be the team I follow the most. Yeah, Russell Wilson, Hall of Fame quarterback or no? What do you think? Probably because he's he's won a Super Bowl and he's I think he's a good leader. But I I don't know. He needs to do it over and over again. I think to to really be a Hall of Fame quarterback. Yeah. So the the idea though of using phrases, for example, when and then. So to your child, when you sit down, then we can watch TV. And, mm. and I think just it's it's a language to me. Leadership, if you adopt a philosophy, it's a language base. Because I could say to your child, you and I both know it's important to sit on the couch. I could say to an employee who's having a hard time arriving on time. You and I, you and I know at Fred's camp that all employees arrive yeah. to work on time. Do you have any questions? And it's really just setting the employee up for success. Now, if they don't meet that expectation, to me, the conversation goes to, you know, last week we talked about this, this week we talked about this, and then it's, what do you think? As opposed to me trying to overpower you to do something it's me collaborating with you so we can move you forward. Unless, of course, they're not going to have a career in your business. Well, then that's a whole nother set of, of dialogue to have. One of the, the one of the books I read years ago for uh, we have a book club internally here at our company. And uh, we read a book called How to Say Anything to Anyone. 
And I love that book because there was one part that stuck out to me in particular, having a contract with somebody, basically, like you said, setting expectations, where it's like, this is the expectations. We're both going to agree to this. And if you can't, then it's like, maybe that person needs to leave. But it also, it opens the door to feedback as well. So it's like, if you have an understanding, like, okay, you're not on time. Well, because we have this agreement up front, it's okay for me to call you out on it when when you don't, you know, see that through or you you you, you show up late or something. So it, I, what I love about that is you just, you open up the doors. You have a connection with your people when you set a kind of a social contract or agreement up front. Yeah, that's 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 actually a really good idea. And have you have you been able to use this in your company with a large degree of success we, as well? We, we have. We actually so we read that, and then I think it was shortly after that we basically created what we call the Zenium Promise, which is like statements and val- like a set of guidelines and principles that we agree to, and we basically give each other the right to call each other out when we're not like speaking openly and sincerely, or you know, showing up on time is is one of those values as well. Uh, there's a whole list of them, and I can I'll actually put a link up to it because I think it's it's worth looking at. But um, having something like that in place, it it gives you permission to call somebody out. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, you said social contract. I mean, that sounds what it is, and it's it's. I would imagine something like that also comes from great leadership. You sound like your company is very progressive mm-hmm. into looking at the holistic approach to employees. And my bet would be if you would compare. I think the national average on disengagement by Gallup was thirty four percent. Companies like yours probably don't have that issue. I'm sure they have some disengagement because that's natural, but I'm sure the statistics, which means your return, your investment is probably higher, less stress, less tension, and more more productivity. So you had talked uh, in your book about... This just totally stuck out to me because I remember my playing days in baseball where there's like this lighthearted banter in the clubhouse where, you know, whether it's teammates or even between the coach. And to talk about how that lighthearted banter is really effective not only in baseball, but you know, translate it to the business world where having that banter back and forth between coworkers, between teams, between managers and leaders, like why that's really important and how it can make a team much more effective. Simply just modeling how we expect to treat one another begins at just the interview. So when I'm when I'm interviewing you and I want to see if you're a fit for my culture, just even asking questions. You know, if I ask who inspires you, which is a question most companies would ask, and they say, my grandma, well, then it's, what did she teach you? What did you learn from that? It's that emotional connection, which then leads to, you know, everyone is not funny. Everyone is, everyone has a different style. So I don't think, you know, I think in the book, it's the acronym I Mm -hmm. use is war, wit, accountability, and responsiveness. And the idea of, me being able to create opportunities for you by building my skill set. It could be something as simple as sending out a weekly email about uh, something that has nothing to do with work at all and then having a discussion on it. I talked about the thumb ball, the interaction. I think companies like Google, they do a great job because they're Google. They get that all the time with just having their ping pong tables and their coffee <laughs> shops. E- even, even meetings, 
And if you think about a meeting, it's typically one person in front who is physically taller than everyone else, usually then sitting in chairs. But even just changing that dynamic into a circle. And instead of sitting for the first five minutes, we stand and we just play a game called 30 Second Share. And it's just, you know, if you could have dinner with one person, who would it be? And the idea is by doing that, you will pull out people who might feel disconnected because it's almost tribal leadership they're forced to. And then finding the the right rhythm that you want to keep pace. And I think if a manager or leader is just sitting in their C-suite, I think they're missing an opportunity yeah. because I, I swear by this that the best things in life are the things that, are, that you don't see on a schedule or a spreadsheet. You know, meetings, yes. Business, yes. But what about when we're passing each other in a hallway? You know, how about me just using your name instead of hi? It's hey, Brandon, and learning that. So bringing, you know, every meeting should begin with some kind of, I call it uh, the gas concept, salutations. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, sorry, greetings <laughs> yeah. and salutations. You, you got to throw some gas on it. And because by doing that, if I don't do that, and then all of a sudden I say, all right, let's do this team building initiative. We're going to go out to the wilderness. We're going to rock climb. But if there's no trust yeah. at the forefront or no deliberate or purposeful or intentional action, no one's going to want to climb the wall. So there, there's, there's one, there's a stat in, in your book uh, that was like, I had to take a double take because you know, oftentimes with teams, you think like, oh, they just win all the time, like really effective teams, like the best baseball teams. Or I was even thinking like, gosh, the Blazers are probably going to win almost 50 games this year, maybe over that, but yet they're still going to lose 32. And so you made a point about like the, even the best teams lose almost 40% of the time. So how do you even like the most effective teams, they lose and they fail. How do you use those losing or failure moments to, to continue to stay positive and to learn from those and be more effective as a team? And it, obviously it starts with leadership with using those moments as teaching moments. What's the most effective way to do that? There's probably no one in a sport of baseball who feels worse than the guy that just booted the, oh, booted gosh, the ball. Yeah. Ninth inning. Ninth inning, 3-2 game, you're the pitcher comes in, 40,000 people at Wrigley Field screaming, yelling, national TV, Sunday night, your adrenaline's pumping, and you throw a wild pitch that somehow scores two runs and you, you lose the game. So the last thing that person needs is for his leader to say, you know, you didn't really execute at the end of the game there, and you, you really didn't help us out much. What that leader needs is to recognize that this is going to happen. There's an ebb and flow to our season. We're going to, baseball, as we know, is a numbers game, and there's going to be times when we win and lose. But I think creating the environment that, that you want for a very safe place for people to go. So pointing out the, the mistake doesn't help. But what can help is me saying to you, if you're my pitcher, uh, hey, Brandon, you know, you, you seem to have a real hard time with your command. Anything change about the way you approach today's game? And even though that person might take what I said in a, in a negative way, it's not me pointing the finger at them. It's me inviting them to think about what it is that we want. Because I am convinced that generally people 
do a really good job self-regulating themselves. The problem is we don't give them the opportunity to do so. So, you know, if an employee makes a mistake at yes. work, they know they made the mistake. So the manager, the manager can simply say, what happened? You know, take me through your process so we can grow together. And then eventually the employee either has to make a step change to, to change the behavior or they don't work at your company anymore. That's so fascinating because it, to, to me, like if you ask the right questions as a, a leader, that's actually the most effective approach. Yeah, I love that, that state, the statement you just made about like what happened. Like that's a great question because then it gets the, the employee or the player in that example to self-regulate and to you know, figure it out for themselves. It's a self-reflection. I think it's the best form of leadership. Yeah, my wife gets upset at me. I have a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old boy, and they, they fight. There's a right spoiler alert, right? A 13-year-old and yeah. 10-year-old fighting surprise, and they surprise. share a room. That, but like, those things, like those things don't happen. So what ends up happening, though, is they'll be fighting, and my wife – it's my anniversary today, by the way. Just so I, just so you know, I'm spending oh, my anniversary wow. talking to you, Brian. You should feel very, <laughs> very honored by that. So, so what ends up happening is they'll fight. And then she will immediately want to intervene and referee. My thought is, let them go at it. Because if, if one person is choking the other person, at some point, they're going to recognize that maybe I shouldn't choke my brother so much. And so it might be an extreme example. But the idea of self-regulation is really important. And if we want to have people become incredibly innovative, the ideas need to come from them. It doesn't help me to tell you how to do your job, but it does a much better job for me to ask you and have you involved in the process. So you can reflect on it because if you reflect on it, you will grow. And then the second part with this be once I see you grow, it is my job to encourage you, but then take what you've just learned and teach it to someone else. Because we know when we teach something, when we teach someone else a skill, we become an expert in that. So just taking the time in these little, hey, John is in accounting. He's having a really hard time with this spreadsheet. Do you think you could share this with him? And then immediately the employee pumps up their chest and feels really good about what they've done. You are now literally delegating a task that maybe you didn't have time for. And you're doing it in a way that is bridging social connection between two individuals who otherwise maybe wouldn't have talked at all. People who think of the name Ricky Henderson would know that he's the all-time leader in, in bases stolen. What I didn't know, which he wrote about, was that he's also a, a leader in another category, which is uh, caught stealing. You know, so <laughs> I had to look that up actually because I I did not know that. But I think it, it actually proves a really good point of like taking risks. Like you can't have success without taking some risks. So yeah, he's the all-time leader in stolen bases, but he's also the leader in caught stealing, which you know has a has some negativity to it. But he couldn't be the leader of stolen bases without that. So you know, use that as an example of how leaders need to to take some risk to have success. Like, what do you what do you learn from that? Yeah, I that's that's so interesting because. If you look at stolen bases at just a statistic in baseball, mm -hmm. it's an anomaly. I mean, I think uh, whoever led the league in base, stolen bases probably did not accrue more than 40 bases. Even the whole leadoff man concept, it's no longer the sleek, athletic, slap-hitting guy. It's the guy who has a high power, 
high strikeout, high on base, because the thought is you're only leading off one time a game. So what what do we care? Um, but I, I think, and, and again, this this answer is embedded in the philosophy is taking risks is is inevitable. It's empowering. But before you can take the risk, you need to figure out where exactly it is that you want to go. And I think when we think about making changes, we have great ideas. We jump into them, but we don't think about what the outcome that we desire want, what we would want. And I think that's important because if you don't know what the outcome you desire is, you really have no idea then how you're going to get there. And then ultimately, we take our lead off. We lead off the base by four steps, and then we retreat back to first base. As if that's my metaphor, by the way. I hope I hope that hope that made sense. But then we we take a look at what it is that our goal would be. And if the goal is simply just to get to the next base, then you gotta you gotta go. But realizing that if I do get tagged out, there's a consequence for that. And and hopefully the consequence is not something that we cannot recover from, which is why putting in a whole culture of embodying this philosophy of emotional intelligence and social emotional growth is paramount because when we do get caught and we do have losing streaks, the companies that are functioning as a cohesive unit, they can weather an eight game losing streak. Look at the Dodgers last year. I think the Dodgers started out 16 and 26 to start the year. They made a couple of trades in the middle of the season and they came, you know, then they got swept by the Red Sox in the World Series. But at 16 and 26, you know, you're looking up at 100, 120 games left. That looks like a mountain. But then looking at, all right, we're 16 and 26 now. Let's just get to five games under 500. And then just looking at it in, in chunks along the way. One of my favorite parts of the book was actually how you ended it, which I thought was <laughs> super interesting. You basically outlined your report cards from kindergarten through eighth grade. Talk about that and you're learning from what those report cards said and why you know that's a good sign in leadership is to you know you were you're totally vulnerable you like open yourself up but i'm curious what your your learning was from that now brandon as an hr person this is like therapy for me so do i have to pay you a copay before i speak or am <laughs> I, I will gladly take i'll gladly take a copay no but no just shoot from the hip okay yeah so my philosophy is really embedded in my life experience. I, you know, I switched careers after a 20 year teaching career because I really wanted to focus on helping companies and business develop leadership. I did not go to graduate school. I do not have a degree in business. I have a 20 year background as a PE teacher embedded in working as, at, a, at a very successful summer camp. But I think the biggest thing for me has just been taking care of myself. And it's, it seems like a selfish thing to say, but if we don't take care of ourself and our needs, and those needs could be your mental health. You know, I very openly talk in the book about my struggles with depression and anxiety and panic attacks and how, how an employer could see my attitude or disengagement as, as a, an obstacle for them to succeed because I never felt comfortable sharing these things with, with these people because of the way that I was feeling marginalized or feeling judged. And I, I bet in every company, there are several people, including managers, who feel very similar. And I just gave a presentation, at a, a, do a lot of workshops for teachers, and there's a great uh, TED Talk. And I think his name 
I'll, I'll, I'll get it to you when we, we're done. I think his last name is Shoup. And he essentially outlines this theory of a kid in third grade is bouncing off the walls and they're not listening and they're not paying attention and they have attentional issues. And then he fast forward to that same kid. And ironically, it was him. And, and he ended up speaking to 2 million people, 2 million parents over the wow. course of his lifetime. But the idea is investing in people and not looking at things that you may or may not like is, is really important. And so when I presented my, my report cards, it was things that you would say to an employee. Well, hey, Mark, this has been a lot of fun. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You know, I want to give you the last word. Where can people learn more about you, uh, get your book, anything that you want to point people to? Hey, thanks, Brandon. You too. I really enjoyed uh, my time. And I'm looking forward to continuing our dialogue. And I want to wish you and Blazer Nation the best of luck for the playoffs. Hopefully you can uh, resurrect the, uh, the passion of Dr. Jack Ramsey and bring your championship. I think they haven't won since 1977, 78. So good luck with that. My book is currently available on Amazon. It's entitled Elevated Leadership, a Pitch-by-Pitch Guide to Business, Life, and Baseball. My website is elevatedleader.com. You can also email me at mark, M-A-R-K, at elevatedleader.com. I'm also available on LinkedIn, and I what I really enjoy is I enjoy talking to people and listening to people, so feel free to call me at 872 808 0274. Thanks again, Brandon. Thanks for listening to today's episode featuring Mark Greenberg, the author of Elevated Leadership, a pitch-by-pitch guide to business, life, and baseball. If you're not yet subscribed to our podcast, go to your favorite podcast app and click that little subscribe button so you get our episodes weekly to make sure you get all the fresh, great content that we're putting out. And also make sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. And I'd love to connect with you. 